Okay. Here we are. We're in chapter 28. We've already looked at four chapters of you know, four, four sections. And this section is where we get more into the nitty gritty. We're looking at answers to apologetic challenges and chapter 28 is tools of apologetics. Now we've already looked at several, these three items here, prejudicial conjecture, unargued philosophical bias, and key intellectual sins. That's what we did last week. So tonight we're gonna to look at two more of the tools of apologetics. And this was our introduction, and I just want to read this again because I think it's important. An army cannot be expected to wage a successful battle if its soldiers are unfamiliar with the various weapons they have at their disposal for dealing with the enemy. Likewise, a builder cannot construct or repair a house if he does not know what kinds of carpenter and plumbing tools are available to him and how to use them. In the same way, Christians who want to defend the faith should, pre should prepare for answering the criticisms of unbelievers by familiarizing themselves with the tools of reasoning and argumentation that can be enlisted in apologetics. That's just the introduction. We, we read that at last week, but I thought it was germane to read it again. First tool that we're going to look at tonight is contradictory presuppositions. And this is important, and you'll, you'll be able to see just how practical these uh, tools are. When we talk to unbelievers about their views, especially their worldviews, we should be especially sensitive to hear or discern what their controlling assumptions are about the nature of reality. Remember, that's metaphysics. About the nature of knowledge, that's epistemology, and about what is right or wrong in human behavior, and that is their ethics. Now remember, we've looked at this in the past, and this is where our battleground is. Remember, we've talked about it in the past, not getting so caught up uh, in specific uh, results of their thinking, but always bringing them back you know, to their underlying presuppositions. And the lessons tonight is going to show you exactly why we want to do that. Bonson says, as we say, everybody does philosophy, but not everybody does it well. Not everybody reflects self-consciously about such matters and seeks a cogent and consistent outlook. This is important that you understand. Notice what he says, not everybody reflects self-consciously about these matters of epistemology, uh, metaphysics, and ethics. That's why when you start to debate or argue, and when I say argue, I mean that in a logical sense, not, you know, not a screaming match, okay? Um, most people, most people have no idea what their view on metaphysics is. They have no idea what their epistemology is. It's just haphazard things that they've thought and they put all of these fragmentation pieces into their mind and there's no consistency to it. And that's what we're gonna, and that's, that's a strong point for us. If we have. So if we're not prepared, then it's like two fools talking over and under each other and never coming to, to meet. All right, so we're still looking at contrary presuppositions. 
So Christians must learn to listen closely. Uh, let the other person do a lot of the talking because you, that's how you, you lead them down the path that you want to get them on. One of the things in an, an interrogation technique, oh wait, maybe I shouldn't tell you this in case you're ever arrested. <laughs> One of the interrogation techniques is just to get the guy talking. Let him talk. And once he gets talking, people always will reveal themselves. And if you get your, your um, opponent talking, sooner or later he's going to reveal what's in his heart. Okay? So we have to learn to listen closely to what the critics of the faith are saying and seek to identify what is being taken for granted by the critic. He may not realize what he's taken for granted, but if you're listening carefully, you'll be able to pick up any of his contradictory presuppositions. He says, we must point out then, analyze and criticize the presuppositions of our opponents. In the nature of the case, in the nature of the case, the conflict between the tenacious unbeliever and the faithful believer will come down to a matter of differing presuppositions. That's what we've been saying all along. You have to get to the level of presuppositions. When we identify the presuppositions of the unbeliever, we will see in case after case, indeed in every case ultimately, all right, that the unbeliever has an unmanaged and irresolvable tension. All right? That's our, actually our next, our next point is these unresolved tensions. Between his operating assumptions, all right? What are his operating assumptions? His belief about reality, about knowledge, and ethics. And what you, if you listen carefully and get the person talking and asking him the right questions, you will see this tension. And what we mean by tension is that, uh, that they are not in agreement. What he believes about his, his, where his knowledge comes from and his view of reality and his code of ethics will not be in, in harmony with each other. And that's where, and it says, look what Bronson says, his basic beliefs about reality, knowledge, ethics, do not comport with each other, do not work harmoniously with each other, or outright contradict each other. That's a big likelihood. And if you can point out the, uh, an absolute contradiction, uh, then you're way, way ahead of the game. Okay, we're going to look at four tensions. All right. And in fact, I'll give you the kind of the outline for tonight. First, we're going to look at these four tensions uh, of contradictory presuppositions, and then we're going to move into the subject of logical fallacies. And in the book, Bonson identifies 15 logical fallacies, and we're going to look at each one of those so that you can learn to recognize them. And then if we have time, uh, I put five extras that some are my favorites. So. Right. that Bonson doesn't cover. All right, tension one, one's ethical perspective. In other words, his view of right and wrong. Let's take just as an example, someone holds to a hedonistic lifestyle. What is a hedonistic lifestyle? That pleasure is the highest value. This, you've seen this in a beer commercial. You only go around once in this life, so grab all the gusto you can get. That's hedonism. In other words, I'm going to, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm, it's not a question of right or wrong. It's whatever makes me happy. If you, somebody has that 
viewpoint, and then they're appalled by an official taking a bribe. There's a tension there. There's a contradiction there. What do you see the contradiction as? This is going to be audience participation. Well, the official taking a bribe is pleasing himself. Yeah, that's exactly right. Perhaps taking a bribe gives the man pleasure. So who are you to say that it's wrong for him to take bribes when your viewpoint is, is if it feels good, do it? Did you have a comment? Okay. Um, I think one of the greatest examples we see with this is when people make um, the abortion argument in cases of rape where they assign victimhood to one of the parties, but then suggest that there's like exoneration to then do wrong. Yeah, yep. And that's exactly what we're looking for. So that's the first tension, all right? Second tension that you're going is one's epistemological perspective. In other words, his, his source of knowledge. You've heard this a lot. Someone ridicules your, ridicules your Christian faith saying, Seeing is believing, all right? Seeing is believing. When questioned about his own faith, when you start talking to him, he bases his opinion on the works of others, textbooks, research papers, and ancient philosophers. So where do you go with that? Well, that's a wide open door for you saying, wait a minute. You're not living by your, what your own standard of knowledge is because you haven't seen this You've heard this from others. So there you have him at, at contradiction to his own philosophy. You see, what it, you see where it's going? So it, first we saw it in ethics, now in epistemology. What's the tension? Obviously his opinion is not based on seeing and believing, even though that's what he says. So he says one thing, but he believes another. Tension within one's metaphysical perspective. That's his nature of reality. An example, a college professor teaches a behaviorist view of man. What that means is that he argues free will is an illusion. Man's actions are merely a response to stimulus and thus predictable, and the individual is not really making the choices, all right? He He's just doing what his synapses, when they're firing, tell him to do in any given circumstance. This is a big one on the college campuses, by the way. All right. Now, one of his students is caught cheating on a test. He's indignant and fails the student. Where's the tension? He has no right to be indignant, because if, according to his worldview, the person is not responsible. He's just acting out what his own biochemical signals are telling him to do. So this, you can see how on each one of these levels, if you ask the right questions and put them into a certain situation, you, you come down to you see the, the tension between it and outright contradictions. There's one last one showing the difference between the two. Tension between one's epistemology and one's metaphysics. Someone holds the view that there's no spiritual realm. Physical world is all there is to reality. How many have come across that? I mean, everybody should have at some point. This is another 
very common one. He asserts that the Christian worldview is false because it contains logical contradictions. For example, God can't be three in one. You can't have three persons in one. So he says that's a logical fallacy. Why can't he, why has he no grounds to say that? What's the, what's the tension here? Brian. He has no basis for logic. Exactly. His worldview cannot account for logic since logic is immaterial. It's not part of the, of the physical world. You're getting an idea at the tools that Bonson is giving us? All right. So that's just a, a smattering of the, the tension. Any, any view that the humanist wants to take, you can come up with something exactly the same if you know how to do it. Okay. So, next, logical fallacies. And we're going to spend the rest of the, the time on this. This, again, is Bonson speaking. <clears throat> he says, we've just mentioned the laws of logic and how materialism would preclude them. Because the laws of logic are so important to argumentation and reasoning, uh, and reasoning, precisely what apologetics is all about, as we said before, we should pause to familiarize ourselves with some of the most common of those guidelines for reasoning. An effective defense of the faith will call for skillful use of logic in meeting the challenge of unbelievers and refuting their arguments, <coughs> as well as in doing an internal critique of the unbelievers' own basic outlook. Okay? Basically what he's saying, the best way to point put holes into the, your opponent's thinking is to show that he can't be consistent in logic and there are recognized logical fallacies that you can point out, which they might even know them, they might even try to use them, but they commit them all the time. So we're going to look at three separate categories of logical fallacies. Resting, first one is resting a conclusion upon a, appeal to populist popular sentiment, all right? So I'll, I'll give you somewhat of an idea. This book must truly be great. It's on the bestseller list. What's the fallacy? That the majority of people know a good book. <laughs> that the majority of people can read. No, I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, because a book is on the bestseller list, does that mean it's great literature? In fact, how much, how much great literature actually want, finds itself onto the bestseller list? But that's an appealing to the pop. Just if most people think it's great, then it must be great. That's a logical fallacy. Okay, got it. The Nazis were the majority. They were. That was good. Yeah. Now again, this is just one example. I mean, you can take this and put it in in any of the realms. All right. Second one. Resting a conclusion upon an appeal to emotion, pity, fear, any, any emotion, all right? That man on trial must be innocent. He's suffered so much. This is exactly what defense attorneys try to do. Show how the defendant is the victim and how he has suffered. No? Oh. Oh, okay. 
right? You get the idea? So it's an appeal to emotion. If you can win the emotion of the person, they're overlooking the logic. But that is, in fact, a logical fallacy. Third, resting a conclusion upon an appeal against or in favor of the person, authority, circumstances, or history of someone advancing a particular thesis. Bonson gets very wordy in these. Some of these even have names, which I'll point out as we go. Bertrand Russell said there is no God. Therefore, there is no God. You will see this type of an argument all the time or frequently from your opponents of setting somebody up. But what's, what's the presupposition here? Yeah, that Bertrand Russell knows, and he's an authority and is worthy to be listened to. That's the presupposition. How do you, how do you refute this? Huh? Well, you can't just say he's not. That's doing his thing. <laughs> I mean, you start off. What makes him, ask the questions, what makes him worthy to be listened to? What makes his opinion any better than my opinion or anybody else's opinion? So you start asking questions along those lines to tear down the fact that because there is a legitimate appeal to authority. Yeah. So there's, there's a thing called uh, a tactic called just the facts. So I would ask the person, you know, okay, so Bertrand Russell says there is no God. What are the facts? What are the facts that he's putting forth that, that prove that there is no God? Take him mm -hmm. out of the picture. What are the facts? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Fourth, resting a conclusion upon an appeal to premises which prove, if anything, something altogether. And th this is one of my favorites. And uh, I've told a story about Walter Martin on the radio, but the fact that Jesus was put in, was the, the fact that the tomb Jesus was put into was found empty proves Christianity is false. You get it? There's, there's actually a group of people who think that because there's no, see, like the Muslims, for example, they know where Muhammad is buried, all right? And, we, they, and they're quick to point that out. Um, any, everybody know who Walter Martin is? Walter Martin was an apologist of the mid-20th century. Very famous. He 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 a pre predecessor for guys like uh, James White. Said, That's right, yeah. He's the original Bible answer man. He was on a, a late-night talk show on radio called uh, the, the Long John Nebel Show. And he was debating a Muslim on the air. And they were going back and forth, back and forth. And uh, Walter did, and that, he always did an excellent job. And he kind of backed the guy into a corner. And the guy, the Muslim, came out and he says, wait a minute. He says, you know what, there's more proof for Islam than there is for Christianity. He says, in Islam, we've got Mecca. We've got the tomb of Mohammed. All you've got is an empty... And he stopped mid-sentence. <laughs> and, and Walter jumped in. That's right. All we have is an empty tomb. And he said, well, let's go to a break. Let's, let's cut it. And the guy never came back on the air. The empty tomb 
far from disproving Christianity, is one of the proofs you can put forth. Just the facts. Okay, so that's four. Number five, resting a conclusion upon an appeal to the absence or ignorance of premises proving the contrary. UFOs must be alien spaceships. The government has never offered any other satisfactory explanation. Obviously, some of these are hyperbolic in nature, but that's intentional to prove the point. What's the, uh, what's the fallacy? That the government's the government is our source of knowledge. Yeah. And, and just because nobody's come up with another, an alternative view doesn't mean that this one is false or that this one is true, I should say. Okay? So now, this is Bonson speaking again. In each of the preceding kinds of fallacious reasoning, the truth of the premise or premises used in an argument is irrelevant to the truth of the proposed conclusion. There's a disconnect. The first premise, the premise that you're basing it on, is irrelevant. It's not proving anything of the conclusion. The conclusion is unwarranted. Okay? Even granting the premise, the conclusion need not follow. Consequently, such lines of thinking are unreliable. Oh, by the way, too, one of the principles of, of logic is the conclusion may be true, but the method of getting there is fallacious. So it doesn't matter if, if, if it's true or not. The point is, you're going to come, if, if you use one of these logical fallacies, even though your ultimate conclusion is true, you're going to come up with egg on your face if, if your methodology of getting there is not logical. Follow? Okay. In other forms of fallacious reasoning, and six to ten we're going to be looking at, the truth of the conclusion does not reliably follow from the premise because of ambiguous or confused thinking. So we've got five more to look at. Resting a conclusion upon an appeal to a premise or premises where terms are not being used in the same sense, where questions of grammar or emphasis render the sense of thus truth of the premise uncertain. All right, notice what it's saying. The one I've picked out is, is kind of a change in, in the grammar. The only rational being is man. Okay, now I'm gonna stand back when I... <laughs> women are not men. <laughs> this explains why women are so irrational. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't read this. <laughs> What's the fallacy here? <laughs> What's the fallacy? It's an easy one to point out. Yeah, but specifically in the, in the syllogism. Well, the term man is for mankind. Yes. Women are included in the term man. Yes. Yes. All right, so the whole thing is, is fallacious. 
And this happens to be one where the conclusion is false. <laughs> did, did I save that? Did I, did, am, am I okay? <laughs> See, I could do that because my wife's not here. Number seven, resting a conclusion upon an appeal to a premise which is merely the restatement of the conclusion or takes the conclusion for granted. All right, see if you can follow this one. Water is wet, therefore water is wet. Circular reason. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of a, one of the easier ones. Number eight is resting a conclusion upon appeal to a premise which is stated in an overly general fashion, which does not recognize important qualifications, or which is known to be true only in a limited number or a typical set of cases. All right, here's, okay. The Knicks are a great basketball team. <laughs> Therefore, each member of the team must be great. Doesn't follow. Just because you have a great team, it doesn't mean that every individual is a great player. Is that is that called fallacy of composition? Yes. Yes, it is. Number nine: resting a conclusion upon appeal to a premise or premises in such a way as to confuse the attributes of parts or something with the attributes of the parts of something with the attributes of the whole. This, this is called the fallacy of division. The, the other was composition, they're kind of like opposites. Sodium, chemical symbol Na, is poison. Chlorine, chemical symbol Cl, is poison. Therefore, sodium chloride, which is table salt, is poison. You see the fallacy. Just because the parts are something doesn't mean that when they're put together as a whole, all right, that they're something. And there's, there's another one. Um, all the parts of a seven, Boeing 747 are made as light as possible. Therefore, a 747 must be extremely light. Is that true? No. Okay. Number 10. Resting a conclusion upon appeal to a premise or premises in such a way as to confuse the casual and temporal connections between events. Confuse different kinds of causation or overlook the complexity of causes for something. Here's an example. The American War for Independence happened after the Renaissance. Therefore, the Renaissance was the cause of the war. See the, see the fallacy, just because something, there, there's a name for that, post, 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 I, yeah, I can't remember it, it's Latin, okay, post, hop, ergo, that's it, good. All right, finally, there are kinds of informal fallacies in reasoning, which are going to be number 11 of 15, which betray either an unfairness of mind and method in the person proposing the argument in question or a distortion of the facts. 
Number 11, resting a conclusion upon someone's inability to offer a single, simple, or clear answer to a complex question, raising more than one issue, a trick question emotionally loaded, or a misleading question creating a false impression or diverting attention from the specific issue. When did you stop beating your wife? What's the, what's the fallacy? <laughs> and, and, and you can't just answer that with a dime or a date, right? When did you stop beating your wife? Okay. Number 12, resting a conclusion upon a forced choice between two alternatives which are erroneously presented as the only options. This is called uh, the false, false middle. Yeah. You didn't finish your homework yet? You must either be lazy or stupid. <laughs> but there are alternatives. Resting a conclusion upon a line of reasoning which evidences the use of double standard or special pleading. The first grade class averages score of 90 on their math test. The senior class averages score of 85 on their math test. Therefore, the first grade class is smarter than the seniors. <laughs> you see, it's double standard or special. 14, resting a conclusion upon an erroneous comparison between two things which do not resemble each other but in, ir in ir irrelevant or insignificant ways, like apples and oranges, right? Dogs have tails and feet. Cats have tails and feet. Therefore, dogs are equivalent to cats. Okay? 15, resting a conclusion upon the mistake of treating concrete attributes or series of particular events as though they were an entity in themselves, metaphorical hypostatization or abstraction. All right. Justice demands a guilty verdict in that trial. Why, what's wrong with that? It's, it's a trial. Justice is going to be the outworking to find out if he's guilty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's an assumption of guilt there. Yeah, that's true, but what's the, the basic underlying principle? Justice is an abstract and can't demand anything. You can say the Constitution demands. We can say the evidence. Well, not even that would be... Uh, would, would be an abstract. Okay. I have time for questions. However, I just, I think we do have time. I, I have five that are not in the book. It's called the ad baculum fallacy, which is Latin for the stick. It's, in other words, there's a veiled threat. If you don't vote for Senator Snout Snuffle, the ozone layer will be destroyed in six months and we will all die. <laughs> Obviously, right? Is that true? You know, but it's a veiled threat. It's a logical fallacy. This, this, this one you'll hear all the time in political debates. 
If, if, yes, it's the most important election in the, in the history of mankind. The ad hominem fallacy, that's, we should all be familiar with that to the man. We know that you have stated that sun rises in the east every morning, but you're also a jerk. We know you're a jerk. Just pointing it to the man. If you're ever the victim of an ad hominem, ad hominem fallacy, don't disobey, don't despair, because nine times out of ten, if you're the victim of it, it means you got them on the run. When they turn to ad hominem, when they try to discredit you. The two croquet fallacy, which basically is, yeah, well, you too. Don't tell me I can't smuggle co cocaine. You do too. You do it too. Chronological snobbery. Categorical logic may have worked for Aristotle, but it's outdated now. Um, this is funny. This is one of those fallacies that can work two ways. Sometimes the appeal to the old, the, the, everything old is better. And other times it's, well, no, that's outdated. The new is better. All right. And you'll see the, the snobbery go either way. Okay. You see this in the church. Only now can the book of the Revelation be fulfilled. Okay. Anyway. A priorism fallacy, which is a hasty generalization. I tried to talk to the new boy Tommy yesterday, and he stuck his tongue out at me. Boys are so mean. Hasty generalization. That's it. Questions? You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.